Hi, this is Josh Porter. I'm on a team with several other men and women who together help lead this thing called Van City Church. This year, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, some of our musicians got together and wrote and recorded a song called Broken King, and we released it under the band name End of Death. It's available now from all digital music retailers and streaming services like Apple Music, Spotify, iTunes, and the like. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. Apprenticeship to Jesus is a journey from immaturity to maturity, from being wounded to being healed, from false self to true. Does this journey have something like a metaphorical map, a map that might enable us to best steward our relationship with Jesus, best understand what he's saying and doing with your life in a given stage, best walk the road to maturity without painful backtracking. If there is such a thing, isn't that map a good idea? We're actually beginning a new series and a new practice this evening, so I want to start with some recommended reading. Um, There's going to be a a chunk of it throughout the series, but if you're interested from uh, kind of the beginning point, Got a couple of books. Uh, The first is called Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. Uh, It's a pretty thorough work on the whole idea of spiritual formation, which is something we go on quite a bit, uh, about quite a bit at Van City. Um, And it deals uh, extensively with what we're going to be talking about in the series, which is something called stage theory. So Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. And then the second is a book called Sacred Fire by uh, Ronald Rollheiser which uh, has to do, again, with the stages of the spiritual journey. Um, Super helpful in particular if you're uh, anywhere from like age 30 on to retirement. You don't have to be to read the book and make sense of it, but it is particularly helpful if you're in that stage of life. So Invitation to a Journey and Sacred Fire. There will be more books along the way if you're interested in reading, and you should be. So think about it. Now, uh, with that said, let's read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. You guys all right? Thank you. Okay, great. Let's uh, read beginning with verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I am uh, never not reading a, a novel, meaning I always have like one in rotation. As soon as one's done, I have another one that I can go to uh, in any downtime to read. I always have holds at the library, and I'm there a couple times a week and like a stack of books to return. And while I'm there at the library, since I frequent the library, my, 
wife and I are always like, we get the push notifications from the library that says, you have materials, which is what they call books for some reason. You have materials available. And uh, we say, hey, well, you go to the library. I'll go to the library. You go to the library. And then we're always like, oh, these are yours. These are mine. Stacks of novels. And uh, while I'm there, I always stop. They have just past the registers like a, a shelf with new fiction on one side and new nonfiction, boring, on the other side. And uh, I always pause at the new fiction shelf, and I often grab a book or two that, like, I, I don't try to learn too much. It's just, like, interesting cover, and then grab it to see, like, you know, try to read outside my typical preference. It's a great way to experiment. And last year, one of those books was a book called uh, The Hike. Um, it's by a gentleman named Drew uh, McGarry, a 2016 novel. And in The Hike a man decides to take a brief stroll through the woods. This is the premise of the novel. And he finds himself trapped in a strange world from which he cannot escape. And then he's like pursued by giants and monsters, a talking crab at one point. And uh, our hero must continue the journey home in the face of an unpredictable trail, setbacks, both strange and horrifying. And really, I started to think as I was reading this uh, interesting and bizarre novel that so many of uh, the fiction, so much fiction that we have, so much classic fiction and noteworthy fiction, not so noteworthy fiction, is really about a complicated journey. All the way back to like Homer's Odyssey to, you know, Tolkien's epic sleeping pill, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. Where's this? Levi, did you hear me? Levi? Oh, <laughs> I thought of you specifically when I did that. In fact, I typed in just, you know, the reference to Lord of the Rings. And I was like, I'm going to add a diss just to upset Levi. Um, so many of those stories are uh, not just about the journey, but they're about the horror of getting lost along the way, the complications of the journey, taking the wrong turn and what that means and who survives along the way of the journey. If you think about, you know, literature like Watership Down or, or even television, Lost in Space or Gilligan's Island or film, The Blair Witch Project or Interstellar. The idea of getting lost on the journey, the harrowing journey, it resonates with the human experience because we, we realize that isn't life, ex life itself is the odyssey. Life itself is the hike. Aren't our stories, our personal stories, marked by their costly detours and the horrifying obstacles along the way? One minute, everything's going exactly like you planned, and the next, you're making a clock radio out of coconuts or, you know. What do you mean? Who said what? What? You didn't understand the reference? Who didn't understand the reference? Katie? Gilligan's Island. Professor. There's a professor on the island and he makes all sorts of sophisticated technology out of the resources available to him, like coconuts. Anyone? Yep. No? Yep. Okay, thanks, Lexi. <laughs> we're going to keep it together. We'll keep it, we're, going, we're all right. Hang in there. So far, summer's no good. Lord of the Rings is no good. <laughs> Reference to Gilligan's Island. We're doing great. Um, all that to say, Jesus actually invited his disciples on a journey. And on the journey itself, often excited would-be disciples kind of sidle up beside him along the way, and they, hey, and they ask, hey, can I join you as you go? And to which Jesus sometimes replied, are you sure? Can you take it? So if you're new to Van City, our slightly unconventional way of doing things is this. The paradigm with which we understand following Jesus, the journey, in other words, is the paradigm of apprenticeship. I describe this as slightly unconventional because following Jesus in many a church circle is more often understood through the dual paradigm of ethics and belief. So if you poll identifying Christians on the street on what it is that makes them Christian, many will likely describe what they believe intellectually and how they behave as a result. And that's not wrong. It's 
response just incomplete. Jesus' invitation was to follow him in a way of life. Becoming a disciple means taking up an all-encompassing way of life. Belief and behavior are, are in there, sure, but so is everything else. So in order to adopt the life of Jesus, one must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, and that takes practice. Like Cam was talking about earlier, it takes lots and lots of practice. Following Jesus isn't just believing something and then floating through life with relatively good behavior. It's learning what it means to be with Jesus all the time so that you can become like Him and then learn to actually do the types of things that Jesus did. So, all that to say, a couple of years ago, we realized that in order to actually equip ourselves for the practice necessary to take on the lifestyle of Jesus, we needed to rethink Van City as a resource for training rather than, you know, like a get-together on Sunday with songs and a TED Talk about the Bible. And every few months, we take on a new practice. It's either a spiritual discipline that's modeled by the life of Jesus, something like fasting or prayer, silence and solitude, something that we see throughout church history as well, or it's a principle of emotional and spiritual health and maturity to kind of aid as we're doing the spiritual disciplines. And all of these things are resources. They're tools in the belt of the journeyer so that we can journey well. Because, after all, that is what this whole thing is. It is a journey. Think about it. Given that Jesus' invitation was to follow, it logically follows that we are going somewhere. In fact, Jesus actually preferred the metaphor of a narrow road. That's what he called his way of life. It's like a road. It's like a way. The New Testament authors love the journey metaphor, and they build out the multifaceted aspects of what it means to go from one place to another with language like we're moving from slavery to freedom, from being wounded to being healed, from being a false self to a true self from immaturity to maturity, or in the grandiose sense, from death to life. And really, from being far from God to being close to God, and all that such an extravagant idea implies. Thing is, many of us know all this, and yet do not actually understand discipleship as a journey. Many of us think we, at one point or another, came to faith in Jesus, and were then ushered into a kind of club, with like-minded people. And sure, we go through seasons, life oscillates, good times, bad times, all that. But I think we, myself absolutely included, often overlook how pressing the road metaphor actually is. The road changes, it winds, you become someone else along the way. There are links of road that are completely unlike what came before and what will come after. So look at just a few passages from the New Testament that describe the journey with related metaphors. Here's Paul when he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the waves of childhood behind me. You are in the journey of discipleship like a baby that is maturing to adulthood. Now that is a metaphor laden with complexity. You are at one stage in the journey, babbling, unable to speak, barely able to lift your head, but you're still here. You're still on the journey of being human. And then you get motor function. And then you can see more than just blobs that are within three feet. And then you, even so, you can't comp comprehend complex categories of thinking and logic. So just the other day, 
my son uh, back, who's five, he asked me a complicated question about eschatology. Um, so we've been giving him like really simple, comprehensible paradigms for understanding the worldview of Jesus and the Bible. He's got the storybooks. We talk to him all the time. It's a thing. So he knows the world, for example, is broken. That's the language we use. And that, that's why there's sadness and hurting in the world. That's why there's death in the world. And he knows that Jesus promises to make the world all better, that he's doing that now, but it's going to happen all the way one day in the future. And one evening we were talking about it, and he, he asked me, how did we break the world? And I said, well, you know, uh, we didn't want God to be the boss. We wanted to be the boss. We aren't so good at being the boss. God's much better at it, and we messed it up. And then he asked, so why does that make animals die? <laughs> and I, to which I had a complex, theologically nuanced reply. But for Beck, I, <laughs> I made a face like I was doing long division in my head. I was like, is there a way to translate this? Nope. Um, because, and honestly, it's fine if he doesn't understand complicated, like, graduate school theology. He's five. And we're like that in discipleship. We're like kids that are stumbling our way into maturity. Still on the journey, but there are stages to it. And this sort of metaphor shows up elsewhere as well. Look at this one from Hebrews. It says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by consent use or by consent, constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Or look at this one from Peter. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Or this one from John. He writes, I'm writing for, to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, meaning you're in, you're on the journey. I'm also writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You're in as well. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. All of you are in on the journey, but you're in different stages. And notice the way these writers believe that there are stages in spiritual development. There's infancy, there's youngness, there's teachers, there's adulthood, there's landmarks of development along the way. And spiritual formation writers came to call this stage theory. And really it's an effort to put language to a concept that's well represented throughout the New Testament. That term is not in the New Testament, but the idea is certainly there. The spiritual journey of apprenticing Jesus. So at Van City, we talk at length about the way that what we call spiritual formation is the process by which we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. So stage theory then is an effort to map that process. And it's not a new idea, not by a long shot. It dates all the way back to the early church fathers, to the founders of monasticism in the 4th century when John Cassian wrote, there is no arrival unless there is a plan to go. Uh, the 1768 allegory, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it by John Bunyan, is essentially stage theory in parable form or fable form. So why have so many thinkers throughout church history written extensively on this whole idea of the journey and its stages? And the idea, I think, is because when you don't have a map, it's easy to get lost or to wander off track or to get distracted, to take the long way when the efficient way is wise or to take the shortcut when the long way is necessary. And the road of discipleship is narrow. It's often really difficult. Jesus was terribly clear about all that. 
But if there is something like a metaphorical map to help you navigate that road so that you can best steward your relationship with Jesus, best understand what he's saying and doing with your life in a given stage, best walk the road to maturity without painful backtracking, then that map is a good idea. Of his research on stage theory down through church history, Bruce Demarest uh, of Denver Seminary wrote this, Spiritual journey paradigms provide the perspective that there yet remains much ground to be gained spiritually. Stage theory, moreover, provides a comprehensive frame of reference for the journey. It helps us gain clarity as to where we are presently located on the continuum of maturity in Christ. It aids heightened understanding of the contours we must yet travel on the course. It assists us to not repeat past mistakes and to avoid future pitfalls. It will likely alert us to seasons of testing, crisis, and dark nights yet to come. It will inform us of valuable resources that can enrich prayer experience, facilitate emotional and spiritual healing, and deepen transforming relationship with Christ. So, tonight... The idea is that we're going to begin a new practice and series on naming your stage of apprenticeship. Now, as we are working, we were working this practice out with our friends at Bridgetown Church. We collaborate and write the practices together. We thought it would be helpful to kind of begin from the outset with a few disclaimers. So let's get those out of the way, and then we can talk a bit more about what stage theory actually is. The first is that stage theory is not the same thing as personality theory. Uh, personality theory is the now ubiquitous trend of things like the Myers-Briggs, the DISC test, um, which you know, I think personally are only moderately better than like the Zodiac, and uh, the ever-popular de-Christianized version of the Enneagram. We're actually big fans of the, this ancient resource for spiritual formation called the Enneagram, but at a popular level now that with the whole uh, like blog podcast culture, it's thoroughly uh, de Christianized or divorced from the tradition out of whence it came. And so you get all kinds of expressions and language and stuff like, oh, I'm an introvert, I'm an INFJ, or I'm a blue, I'm a Gemini. Give me a break. Um, the stage theory is not like that. It, this, is about, this, uh, this isn't about your wiring and your personality in the, in the direct sense anyway. It's about a journey that all of us share, but that journey looks different for each of us. So don't think of it like a test that you take and a label that you receive. That'll only frustrate and disappoint you. This is a bit more complicated, but it's still very helpful. So that's the first disclaimer. Secondly, the whole notion of a journey with stages is not exactly as linear as it sounds. It is, after all, a metaphor, so it breaks down eventually, but you don't simply move progressively from point A to point, point B. Uh, it's actually more like, I struggled to come up with an analogy, and this is the one I liked. It's more like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Um, are you ready for this analogy? So, Michael, you're ready. Um, in a typical D&D campaign, at least the ones I write, there's kind of an open world that the players are learning and uncovering as they go. And they visit and then revisit locations. They move forward and backward, but the campaign is going somewhere. And all the while, they grow. They get stronger, more capable, more informed, better equipped, hopefully. So, for example... Our party, a while back, encountered a dragon turtle in the Bay of Cholt. His name was Aramag, if you're wondering. Uh, it was very early on in the campaign. They were horrified. So they just started heaving treasure <laughs> into the ocean like, oh my God, leave us alone. They knew that they couldn't possibly take this thing on, and they fled the scene. Much later in the campaign, they came back to the same exact place, met him again, and they were quite strong, quite learned, and Aramag didn't stand a chance. It was a sad day for him. Not bad, huh? Pretty decent analogy. 
No? Okay. Next, <laughs> this paradigm of stages can apply to your entire life journey of discipleship, absolutely. But it also applies to nuanced aspects of your discipleship journey, meaning your entire journey has stages in the big, grand, broad sense. But so does your journey with generosity. So does your journey with forgiveness. So does your journey with prayer or with relationships. This is why we all know people, or we are people, paradoxical people, who can be so far along in one aspect of you know, spiritual maturity, emotional health, discipleship, and an absolute infant in another area of our discipleship. It's totally normal, and that is to be expected, I think. Robert Mulholland writes this, this means we can be at different stages in different areas. In one area, we may be well along the path to wholeness, while in another area, God is just beginning to awaken us to another part of our life that needs transformation. Since God always leaves us free to reject transformation, it is also possible for us to regress in this process, or in old-fashioned terms, to backslide. Thus, our Christian pilgrimage is a complex, multifaceted, multi-level ebb and flow of relationship with God. But really, the whole thing is cumulative. It's going somewhere, so you can't skip stages, which is a bummer, I know. I suppose this is why the New Testament writers favor the whole analogy of a baby maturing slowly toward adulthood. So we expect a baby to be incapable of forming complex sentences, but we also expect that in most cases, that same baby will grow to the next stage of development. Each stage is fine and inevitable, but some are harder than others and you have to do them all. Getting stuck is the problem. Plateauing is the problem. Regression is the problem. So in that sense, stage theory is a useful tool to help us understand when we have regressed or gotten lost or plateaued. And when you know, you can unpack your toolbox so that you can chart a course forward. And finally, the disclaimer, another disclaimer is, it takes a long time. Teresa of Avila said in her uh, book, The Interior Castle, which is her book on stage theory and prayer, she wrote, no one becomes so advanced that they don't often have to return to the beginning. Remember that. Don't let discouragement or despair reign in the journey. Don't become complacent when the road seems easy. No one becomes so advanced they don't often have to return to the beginning. The plan for us is to spend a few weeks working out a few paradigms for naming your stage of apprenticeship. We'll talk about it here on Sunday evenings for a little bit, and then you'll meet with your Van City community or some friends if you're not in one yet. Each week, work through some resources together and just give it a shot. When you start to talk about it together, you'll realize that no two journeys are exactly the same, but all journeys are similar. One of the most ancient and well-represented paradigms for naming your stage of apprenticeship is something called the three ways. So we'll talk about that a, a bit in the process. Um, it shows up in writings from the second century. It's that old with Origen, the Middle Ages with Anselm, Thomas Aquinas, uh, 16th century with Teresa, St. John of the Cross. Many writers and thinkers still working through the same ideas in the modern uh, world. The three ways begin with a prologue called Awakening, and then they move to the actual three stages of uh, apprenticeship. There's purgation, illumination, and finally union. So let's talk about the prologue in each stage before we end. The prologue to the three stages is something called Awakening. So think of life before Jesus as a kind of sleep. 
It's a kind of obliviousness to the truth. And then you wake up. Now, for some of you, this happens in an instant. It's over a conversation. I, you know, I met someone in seminary who's like, had a burrito with the guy and left believing in Jesus. That's a cool story. So it could be something like that or like during a sermon or over dinner with a friend. You come to faith, you discover truth, and life from that moment on is forever changed. But for many of us, myself included, awakening is gradual and incremental. Many conversations and incidents and moments and thinking. Now, the American church loves to paint the whole idea, idea of salvation as something that always happens in an instant. And it often begins that way, but it's always a process for all of us. Remember, the Bible's favorite metaphor for our relationship with God is a marriage covenant. So the night, the night that I met my wife Abby is nearly 15 years ago now. The first conversation, the first time that we were like in proximity talking with one another, I was instantly smitten. I was like, this is the coolest person I've ever met. And then in the three years that followed, we built a relationship that eventually became a marriage covenant. Now, the process of awakening can be a clarifying moment like that when the reality of God intersects with our own stories in power, where you realize through one conversation like that, that like, man, there's, there's something here. This is important. This is something big in my life. Or it can be months of slowly showing up to church, having the same conversations, asking questions, slowly opening your eyes, closing them again, and then opening them again. And then you wake up and you begin stage one, which is something called purgation. And I love how like old, you know, metally sounding these names are. Purgation. You are in purgation. You are a, a beginner, essentially. You are a baby. Discipleship begins. You're learning the teachings of Jesus. You're stepping into life with other disciples of Jesus. You're learning spiritual disciplines. How do you pray? How do you read the Bible? And so on. And in all of this, you will be confronted at every turn with something the Bible calls sin. Now, presently, people aren't thrilled about the word sin and even less enthusiastic about the concept. The idea of sin, the culture teaches, is oppressive. You know, it's antiquated, it's out of touch. The idea of sin was invented by the patriarchy to control us. But uh, yet, at the moment... The whole world believes wholeheartedly in right and wrong. In fact, like there's a huge fight about it at all times. We believe in the idea of human transgression. We believe in the idea of evil. But we believe in all of that as defined by us. But sin is the idea, at least in the, the, the scriptures, is the idea that God has a definition of good and evil and that our paradigms for either are often incorrect. And because of that, we often miss the mark, which is literally what the word sin means, to miss the mark. But now that you are awake, stage one, or the prologue is over, stage one, purgation, now that you've begun the journey of discipleship, you are confronting the obstacles of sin on the narrow road. And as you walk, as you practice, as you proceed, you are purging sin from your life. You're uncovering things within that are out of sync with the teachings of Jesus and the practices of Jesus, and you're learning to live differently. Oh, this is not in line with the way of Jesus. My life will have to change. And typically, there are four categories to purgation. The first is called major sin. Some writers call it gross sin, which I thought was a little distracting, like, ew, sin. But uh, major sin, which is basically means obvious, overt sin, glaring sin. These are the kind of things that Paul deals with in Galatians 5. You know, you get his list about like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, which is so, much, so many of you. Um, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
big, glaring issues, right? And how often have you heard stories from folks who, when they're brand new to Jesus, they say things like, man, it's crazy. Last week, I was getting high. I was sleeping around or, you know, like the greatest sin of all. I was texting and talking during movies. But then I met Jesus and everything changed. Repent. Everything changed. That's the idea that the kind of glaring lifestyle sin that's the first to go because it's the most obvious in your path on the road of discipleship post-awakening. Next, after gross or major sin, you confront conscious sins. Now, conscious sins are often culturally and socially acceptable, though they defy the way of Jesus. So pornography is an easy example. Political idolatry, I think, is another. Getting so sucked up into the political milieu that you think that the entire world hinges on political parties and political arguments. There's also things like military violence or divorce or modern progressive sex ethics. These are all things that are socially acceptable um, but defy the way of Jesus. But there are also things that are so- socially acceptable inside the church which defy the way of Jesus. Things like materialism or fast fashion that supports slave labor and injustice or eating habits that support factory farms and cruelty and ecological fallout or gossip or image curation on social media or digital addiction. Things that are flagrantly anti-Jesus and yet we persist in them because it's easy, it's acceptable to do so even inside the church. But then things get even trickier because there are also unconscious sins. Robert Mulholland writes this, Here is where we begin to let the Spirit of God reveal to us aspects of our inner being that have been invisible to our view, but that now we begin to see as hindrances to our growth toward wholeness in the image of Christ. These are sometimes referred to as sins of omission. If you've ever heard that term, it's not necessarily what you do, but what you do not do, meaning you've yet to step into generosity or you've yet to step step into the ways of justice or evangelism, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's that you do good things, but motivated by bad things. So you give, but for approval, or you do justice, but for the Instagram shots. Unconscious sins can be deep-seated, internal. So if you're like me, it's very hard to imagine ever like hitting another person and not because, you know, the physique would lead you to believe otherwise, but uh, I'll never own a gun. I can't remember ever feeling like I wanted to physically fight anyone, physically fight anyone, but I can absolutely seethe with animosity. I can destroy other people with my words. I can burn with resentment. I can drag them through the mud and mire of gossip, and all of this are just other dimensions of violence. So given the complexity of unconscious sins, it's often really tough to purge. Things that you don't even know are in there are coming to the surface. And yet, as disciples of Jesus, all of it must go. And then the final category in purgation is is something called trust structures, which Robert Mulholland defines as this, deep-seated attitudes and inner orientations of our being, out of which our behavior patterns flow those deep inner postures of our well-being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. So in other words, this is the way that you cope with pain. This is the unique way that you chase after happiness or contentment or comfort or even survival. And what makes this category so complicated is the fact that many trust structures are actually good things. Uh, Family is an easy one. Vocation, your dreams and aspirations, romance, marriage, parenting, relationships, even like church work or justice work or mission. 
But these can also be things from which we learn to draw life rather than from Jesus. And we all have them. Here's how you identify yours. Ask yourself, how would I feel if I lost dot, 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 my smartphone, my career, my family? Would it be hard, brutal, devastating for sure? Or would it be your undoing, the collapse of your worldview, your faith, your ability to go on? Because it is all going. Instagram will go the way of MySpace. Your career will end. Your impact will fade. You and everyone you know and love will eventually die. I also officiate weddings. (laughs) Accepting the reality of how transient these things are is a move toward deep trust in God that alleviates anxiety with profound soul-level peace. Not giving up on things that are good, like family or vocation. Those are important, good things. But learning to trust God, not that everything will work out, because it probably won't. Not that everything will be okay, because it often won't. But trusting God's unshakable proximity, that He is close, He is good, and His love is always for you. And learning to accept in all that, no matter what else happens, that's enough. And when this happens, we no longer flap and fret and claw at other things in anxious desperation to make us whole. We're free to enjoy what is good and to not be undone by the inevitability of death, which is easier said than done, right? And all of that is purgation, by the way, stage one. Cameron left me a note on his teaching that said, easy. Uh, The second stage is illumination. And here is where you begin to gain levels of proficiency in your discipleship. You no longer bumble clumsily at the keys of the piano all the time. You're learning to make chords with your hands and to play them. With each passing year, your inner disposition is being overhauled by the way of Jesus. The outgrowth of the Holy Spirit is becoming more and more represented in your life. Things like love and joy and peace and patience are coming to the surface more and more. Jesus is becoming more and more a close friend, not just a concept, more and more an intimately known person. And this stage is called illumination because it's like a sunrise over the mind. Your eyes are being opened more and more to the truth of Jesus' teachings. And you believe more than his claims to be Messiah and Lord as intellectual truths. You believe the things that he taught are true and good and that he did know the truth and that he is the only way to life. And as you read the Bible and you sit under teaching and you live in community with other disciples who are also on the journey, your life is beginning to change as a result. The Catholic philosopher Michael Novak argued for three levels of belief. He said that you have public belief, private belief, and core belief. So public belief is is what we say we believe. It's like the image that we project, like, I'm all about this thing, uh, but it's often disingenuous. Social media, in in a nutshell. Private belief is what we think we believe. We're convinced we believe these things until life somehow puts them to the test, and then they crumble. But core belief is what you actually believe, the kind of belief with which your life always enjoys congruence. If your core belief is, for example, that fire will burn you, then you avoid being set on fire just innately. You're like, no, I believe that. I've got that one down. If your core belief is that food nourishes you, you will eat food to be nourished. In illumination, it's the stage of discipleship in which the truth of Jesus is becoming more and more core 
to your person. And in doing so, you are developing what Paul called the mind of Christ. And he wrote that we would be transformed, and I quote, by the renewing of our minds. And our will begins to harmonize with the will of God. And then we live in obedience. Now, obedience is, of course, right beside sin on a list of modern no-no words. But in the Bible, to walk in obedience to God is freedom. Obedience is truth. It's the full realization of who you are and who you were made to be. Author and pastor John Ortberg described it this way. Obedience to Jesus in all things is the journey, but... Obedience is a far more creative, proactive, grace-powered, intelligent way of life than is normally thought in our day. The obedience Jesus called for requires judgment, discernment, creativities, and initiative. It's about becoming an excellent person, not an excellent rule follower. In fact, an obsessive concern with following rules will hinder your development into becoming the kind of person who does what Jesus says. So, In illumination, we are moving in many ways from practice to new forms of mastery. Not perfection by any means, but new levels of mastery. Um, So just the the idea is like there's no perfect pianists, for example, but there are masters. There are those who, for any shortcomings or lapses in their craft, they have developed considerable skill at what they do. And then comes the final stage, which is union. This side of resurrection Union is the highest level of maturity for a disciple of Jesus. Now, Jesus talked about becoming perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's this idea. A more accurate translation of the idea is, uh, at least for us in our terms, is something like be whole, mature, and complete as your heavenly Father is whole and mature and complete. And this doesn't imply, this does not imply that there's no longer any mistakes or no longer any sin, but the idea is that sin no longer rules over your life. To experience true union with God is to live in baseline synchronicity with the heart of God. Your thoughts, feelings, dispositions, desires, they flow from God and back to God. Once again, from Ortberg, Union with Christ, to abide in Him in Jesus' language, means that He is present in our minds and can communicate thoughts to us at any moment. Human beings are, more than anything else, minds, a ceaseless flow of awareness. Our minds are crucial because it is through our minds that we contact reality. To be constantly mindful of God is salvation from worry, fear, regret, Union with Christ means he is present to my will, and I can surrender to him all day long. It is a key mark of the will that surrender is the one act of the will that never exhausts but always refreshes us. The will was made to surrender to God because we were made for union with God. This idea is not pantheism, which is the idea that God is in everything. Somehow all of reality is in its own way divine. Everything's God. This idea is not Buddhism, which has paradigms for like union with all things, becoming one with all things. And this idea in the the story of the Bible, God is God. 
He is a very real, very personal being with a name. He is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Jacob. We are human beings. We're unique. We're conscious. With, we have volition and will. And in union, we are being united with God so that we are learning to share in His thinking and feeling, a close connectedness that lasts as a baseline disposition throughout every and any given day. This is where discipleship is headed. All the goodness of the journey is a means to an end, and the end is God. To know Him and love Him, to know and operate in love for other people and the whole world. So think about it. All of what we do is actually moving in that direction. All of what we do has that as the end goal, whether prayer or healing or worship, studying the Scriptures, fasting, justice work, generosity, peace, community— all of these things are not an end unto themselves. They move us closer to loving God and to loving other people the way He loves. Now, the problem is most of us hear the stages and we think, dang, am I really only on stage one? Am I really still in the prologue? <laughs> But remember, it's not that simple. It's not that linear. Maybe to you, the idea of union, what I just talked about, seems in, incomprehensible. It sounds so far-fetched. But chances are, you have already experienced it, at least to some extent. Many of you have, in one way or another, in one moment or in one season of your life, felt a deep, ongoing, profound connectedness to God where the truth of Jesus resonated like a symphony for your soul. Maybe it was in a moment of something like prayer or worship, where something occurred to you and stood out and your life was changed as a result. Maybe it was through something way more ordinary. Maybe it was in the experience of a work of art or in a meal around a table with those you love. Maybe it was in a moment holding your child or laughing with a friend or making love to your spouse or a moment in which the closeness and goodness of God seemed undeniable. The idea that we might be alone seemed incomprehensible. That is a glimpse of union, a glimpse of the possibility that you can learn to live in that awareness as a baseline disposition rather than a momentary glimpse. And there are three stages. So why the three stages? I think Ruth Haley Barton makes it uh, satisfyingly simple when she writes this. The classic stages of the spiritual journey, awakening, purgation, illumination, and union, are an attempt to describe the different movements we experience along the way. We all experience these stages, whether we know how to name them or not. The beauty of knowing about the spiritual stages is that, one, whatever we are experiencing, we can know others have gone before. And two, it helps us to know what to expect and what is needed on the journey. So with that in mind, let's practice. This week, you'll head to practicingtheway.org with your community. If you're not in one yet, Basics is coming up, so you can register for that. In the meantime, uh, you can get together with some friends, give it a shot, begin the conversation. You'll sit down together, do all the stuff you normally do, eat, pray, have fun, and then you'll start a conversation about where you might be on the journey, where you've been, where you're headed, which category of purgation, which season of illumination, whatever it might be. Let me end tonight's teaching with uh, a reminder that's both complicated and comforting, I think. Every stage of the journey is a good stage because all of it is discipleship to Jesus. So we don't say to our newborns, when you walk, then you will be my child. Um, Abby and I were on vacation last week, and at one moment we were <laughs> both laughing because uh, our kids, Beck and Isla, 
were just overcome with like rhapsodic delight. They were splashing in like ocean this deep and they were going bananas. It was like the best thing that's ever happened to them in their lives. And Abby smiled at me and said, pure joy. And I didn't know if she meant for them or for her. For me, you know, nearing 36 now, simply splashing in knee-deep ocean, isn't that exciting to me personally? So imagine if instead of savoring what was the exquisite beauty of that moment, I thought instead, man, I can't wait till they get older. We are going somewhere in this journey, yes, but our primary focus and concern isn't how to advance from one stage to another. It's about learning to know and see Jesus in each stage. And when he asks something of you, learning to say yes in the way that you can best do in each stage learning to sense his closeness in each stage. Each stage is good. There's no rushing it. There is only the road of discipleship and walking it well. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.